Hello, you. You're breathing over. Are you alright? My lungs crave air. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about you, but I do it every day, all day. Are Are you done breathing? Just. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Toby Jug over here is Daniel. <laughs> Ooh. Totem pole? What? <laughs> I was thinking of just like folk art that looks like a face. I thought you were going to go with mason jar. What's that? Oh, just a type of jar. It's a jar, but you drink out of them. It hasn't got a face on it, though. Mount Rushmore, which is probably the closest American equivalent to the great English tradition of Toby Jugs, is Abbey. Right, so we're still working through a backlog of letters. Do you want to read some? Yes, please. You may not know that we also have a YouTube. It's just the same as whatever other medium you're currently on but it's on youtube has playlists as well actually it's lovingly curated by yours truly are um, you still doing that are you still updating the playlist still updating them no one listens to it but i'm still updating it but yeah we've got one frequent flyer adrienne gentleman good name and she just leaves a lot of nice comments so thank you for that adrienne she's got a little funny little icon looks like she's eating a baguette or something you know? <laughs> let me see what's going on <laughs> or a panini that's a book open over her face. Aren't you the one who has the ridiculously good vision? Oh yeah, I thought she was like eating like a panini like lengthways. <laughs> but maybe maybe she... do that too, Adrian. Write in and let us know. What did she say, Dan? Oh, for God's sake! She liked the Dorian Gray one. She said it's the best one yet. You two are awesome. Thank you. One of us is anyway. Yeah. One of us does her job every day. Right. We got another one from. It's a sequel letter. From Enrico. You may remember that Enrico from Australia called in, and we mentioned later on if there were ducks in Australia. That's yes. The, that's the context. And I will start this, actually, with the PS, because last time I assumed that Enrico was Italian with his name, even though he lived in Australia. And he said, you will be correct in reading this letter with a thick Italian accent. And I've been thinking about this. I've been stewing on this, and I think that he's taking the piss. I think this is one of those, like, let's make fun of the bloody poms, you know? <laughs> let's, let's make the bloody poms sound like a total asshole. So I'm going to do it in his normal voice. My copy of the Slater Field Guide to Australian Birds lists 19 species of ducks. There are blue-billed ducks, pink-eared ducks, freckled ducks, and my favourite, wandering whistling ducks. Kookaburras, he mentions. Little jokes about kookaburras. I don't get that, because I'm a pom, and I don't know. Did you just want to show off how good your Australian accent is? No. Which is better than your Italian, I must say. You guys are the best as always. My wife and I wait with trepidation for every new episode each month. I'm sorry you're full on Borat, friend. <laughs> You've literally said my wife. Well, thank you, Enrico. Say, yes, thanks, Enrico, even if you are. Oh, not a little rib at me. Speaking of Italians, I assume, somebody named Fabio wrote in. Hi, Abby and Daniel. I am a recent fan of your podcast, and I'm now binge-listening to your back catalogue. I was wondering if you'd ever consider doing an episode on some ancient Greek literature. An episode on Homer's Odyssey would be amazing. What? I am being entirely self-serving in this because I happen to teach ancient Greek literature at Leeds Uni, and I think our first years would absolutely lap it up. 
all the best, Fabio. Now, Fabio, I actually wrote to you as soon as you sent this in, which I never really do because I wanted to let you know that, yeah, when you sent this in, the Odyssey, we were just recording it. I don't even know why you're reading this. Is it a dead letter? Well, he was nice and wrote in. Um, we have friends now at Leeds. Yeah, okay. And this is just a reminder that Daniel and I teach at Aston University. We do English Lit if you ever want to come study with us. We have a brand spanking new MA program, which I'm really excited to teach if you want to come do a Victorian literature module with me. And also we have our normal undergrad where we teach things like post-apocalyptic fiction and ghouls, goths, and vampires. And you and I teach a film course and lots of other fun stuff. So yeah, come study with us. You won't regret it, probably. Probably. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was just looking at you. Yeah. And finally, by way of an update, Daniel and I didn't quite realize that we had a Patreon. I think it got set up when we first did our website, and we didn't know anyone ever clicked on it. I looked in there, and some lovely people have given us eleven pounds over the years for absolutely no content. So what Daniel and I have decided to do is properly open that up. I think we're going to figure out a different fee structure. We're going to release a small back catalog of videos so people who have already been subscribing feel like they actually have something. And then we're probably going to release one of our big teaching videos, usually between 15 minutes and half an hour, that we had developed for our courses during lockdown. Oh yeah, that's the big thing during lockdown because my hair fluctuates quite strangely in it. Oh yeah, mine did as yeah. well. But yeah, come over on Patreon. We would love to intellectually sugar baby for you guys. Please join us there for extra content. So Daniel, could you please tell me what our text is today? Gladly. Imagine a crumbling palace, a rambling old edifice, a hodgepodge of turrets and buttresses. This palace houses an institution that was founded in the Middle Ages by genocidal zealot the knight Simon de Montfort. But it has a legacy that stretches back into the mists of the Germanic tribes. It's made up of two sacred chambers, in whose gloomy expanses of cold stone and moat-flecked miasma, the destinies of millions are subject to cabalistic deliberation. Perhaps it was the mercy of Providence that burned this palace to the ground in 1834, but its depraved inhabitants survived and saw to it that their temple to Pluto be rebuilt on a larger and more grotesque scale than before. Know this place by the profane literature that its inhabitants have produced over the years. The Devil's Tune by Ian Duncan Smith. The Clematis Tree by Anne Widdicombe. 72 Virgins by Boris Johnson. Sybil and a whole load of others by Benjamin Disraeli. The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole and today's text. The Monk, written in 1796 by Matthew Lewis, M.P. Parliament. That's what I'm talking about. I'm picking up what you're putting down. So yeah, we're doing The Monk, and this book is bonkers in a way that only high gothic texts can be, and I'm so excited that my blood has just been, like, replaced with gunpowder. Mm. Let's do it. Are you ready? I just want to say that that's... This is particularly clever. Is it? Set the scene, and I'll tell you why, because it's written a bit like a gothic novel with creepy mansions. But it also ties together the sort of Anglo-centric myth of German liberty. No, I got it. And the neo-Gothic architectural style. They're, yeah, yeah. They're all there and it's tying them together. I'm sorry, am I not appreciating no. that enough? <laughs> Everyone, please write in and tell Daniel what a good job he did because he did do a good job and I am I'm just being withholding. But the thing is, see, I'm British now and we have to ration sugar and our feelings, so I can't give you what you need. 
Okay. So it goes without saying we're about to spoil this book for you. There's a lot in the content warning here. This is quite a nasty, mean-spirited book. So we have <laughs> murder, rape, voyeurism, just a lot of general consent and harassment issues, ageism, sexism, imprisonment, starvation, torture, all kinds of Spanish Inquisition stuff, incest, anti-Roma racism, severe injury, and just a general sense of violence and unpleasantness it's distressing yeah like all books by mps let me <laughs> also say i've got a little correction Ooh. to level at you no you don't in the voltaire episode you kept calling it the spanish inquisition that was the portuguese inquisition so if any people are listening and thinking like oh back to the spanish inquisition it's a different inquisition do you think they might be under the general they're not. That's the big, no, the, that's the big thing. They of the weren't. Catholic no, Church? No, they're not. They're, Are you shitting me? It's a state appendage, yeah. There is a papal mm. inquisition, but it operated differently. I don't believe you. That's no, true, I swear. Okay. Do you want to do some background? I sure as hell do. Hell. Okay, calm down. Okay. Matthew Lewis was a writer and politician. His dad was a high-ranking civil servant who owned plantations and therefore also slaves in Jamaica. Lewis went to lots of prestigious schools in Oxbridge and had held all these kind of civil service and diplomatic job that, that his dad got for him. Uh, he spent some time in France, Germany and the Netherlands and during that time became familiar with all the sort of you know, proto-romantic movements that were on the kind of cutting edge of European literature at the time, you know, like Goethe and stuff. Yeah, and he was on a diplomatic post in the Netherlands when he was 20 when he wrote The Monk and he supposedly wrote it in 10 weeks. Yeah, you can tell. So yeah, The Monk was really, really popular immediately. You know, it was one of those sorts of you know, hits. This is probably because of its racy content. It was also very controversial, unsurprisingly, so Samuel Taylor Coleridge did a review of it and, like, sort of trashed it, saying it was really depraved. Marquis de Sade, meanwhile, really liked it, so... But, of course, Coleridge would disapprove, because the Gothic is Wario romanticism. Wait. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, he was a newly minted member of Parliament. His dad got him the gig, because you could do that back then. But, and when the novel came out, Lewis initially published it anonymously, but because it was so successful, he subsequently published it under his own name, and everybody was really surprised and shocked that a, a legislator would be writing a book like this. And there were even like calls to try Lewis for blasphemy, so he ended up trying to, like in the later editions, toning down the content. He toned it down! I think we've got the original version. God, I would hope yeah. so, because I hate to see you. I was like, ooh, yeah. What's, what's, yeah, yeah. What were these early editions like? <laughs> but but no, I think we're reading the earlier editions. Um, so. Oh, please tell me that's not what you're like in heat. My <laughs> God, <laughs> what is that? Like a sort of fly. Sounds like you're eating spaghetti. Yeah, all that. So, yeah, Lewis wrote other works, mainly plays, but they weren't very famous or successful. The Monk was really successful. He was even known as Monk Lewis, you know. He was that big that he just got known as Monk. It's like, it's like you, how you're known as Shelf Jenkins Smith. So it's, it's one of the big sort of standout works of the first major period of Gothic literature. So that starts with the Castle of Otranto. Which we covered on this show earlier. And I think it's generally considered this high Gothic period to end with Frankenstein. Which we also technically covered on this show, but it was our first episode and therefore it was a bit sh yeah, a bit rough. At um, some point, maybe if we do like a hundred episodes or something, maybe we should redo Frankenstein. Mm, yeah, that's a good idea. So critics sometimes talk about male and female gothic works from this period. You have these gothic works by people like Anne Radcliffe, who's the other big kind of founder of the movement, or like Mary Shelley. 
they develop these gothic motifs that kind of explore and critique gender roles and have ideas about what female entrapment is like in society but also maybe kind of lean into how sexuality has certain complexities to it male gothic is just like straight up voyeuristic and titillating isn't it it's um, maybe like even predatory right well shall we crack on yeah i hope you have your wits about you because this is a we're really getting into it this time great We open inside a big cathedral in Madrid, and this old crone, Leonella, and her super attractive 15-year-old niece, Antonia, they decide to go to hear the legendary Capuchin monk, Father Ambrosio, deliver mass. It's crammed to the rafters. This is the place to be. And, quote, in a city where superstition reigns with such despotic sway as in Madrid, anyone who's anyone wants to be seen there. You wanted to put a little anti-Catholic klaxon yeah. in here. Look at them, bloody Catholics. What are we there? Protestant. Superstition. Well, he's clear. Yeah, That's, Matthew yeah. Lewis is clearly coming out guns blazing That's for the Catholic Church. You know, papist idolaters, isn't it? <laughs> Saying superstition. So while they're there and waiting for mass to start, this nobleman, Don Lorenzo, spots Antonia. And he's like, she is a total smoke show. I'm going to go talk to her. So he gets his, you know, BFF Don Cristobal to go wingman for him and flirt with gross old Leonella. And Leonella embarrassingly thinks the young handsome guy actually loves her. And Matthew Lewis just makes a real f***ing meal out of how gross oh, she is. Because yeah. she's like 50. And she, you know, <laughs> still gets... how deluded she is. Yeah. Uh. Antonia, on the other hand, she's okay because she's lucky enough to still be young and attractive. And also, quote... She was wise enough to hold her tongue, as this is the only instance known of a woman ever having <gasps> done so. It is judged worthy to be recorded here. Yeah. F*** this guy with something yeah. sandpapery. Good start. Yeah, I underline that too. <laughs> so what's Antonia's deal? She's new in town after being raised in isolation with her widowed mother, Elvira. And she also, like, apparently she had a brother back in the day who was a lot older than her, but something happened and he disappeared when he was a baby. And so Elvira's really protective of her only remaining child, Antonia. I don't know, there's there's some nonsensical backstory yeah, about this. Yeah, I over that, yeah. Don't question it. We're in a gothic novel where Matthew Lewis is God and shit don't make sense. Well, speaking of God... Ambrosio, the famous monk, he turns up to give his sermon. It's all very fire and brimstone. We don't actually hear it, do we? We don't get a sort of James Joyce full sermon here. Ambrosio was this guy that was abandoned as a baby at this monastery and raised there. So, like, he's particularly pure because the monastic life is all he knows. Okay, Princess Jasmine. We get it. You've never left the walls. Exactly, yeah. And uh, he's 30 now and he's the abbot. So pretty successful. 30 under 30. You'd be one... (laughs) Oh, would he? If you're 30, you're not under 30 anymore, are you? Well, I but mean... maybe last year. Last, been in last Madrid's 30 under 30. Everyone in the kind of audience, they're all talking about how super holy Ambrosio is. But Lorenzo's like, well, maybe because he's so unworldly, Ambrosio is, if anything, more vulnerable to temptation and sin than anyone else. If you've never been tempted, that's like a classic Catholic tenet, though, that you have to sin to know sin, to yeah. avoid sin. Well, thank you, Lorenzo, for your little theological insight. <laughs> and that's a psychological insight. And the issue is, now Ambrosio's the abbot, he has to do a bit more public-facing work, so, you know, who knows what will happen. Ooh, foreshadowing horn. After the sermon ends, Aunt Leonella and Antonia leave, and in the street they encounter a gypsy, quote-unquote, who tells them their fortunes. So, first of all, she sings... There's a lot of songs in this book, first of all. 
That's another thing about it. I skipped right over yeah, that crap. You know, actually, I think I read these two, and I was like, right, never again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she sings a song to Aunt Leonella saying that, you're going to make a tit of yourself mourning over this young guy. You should know better. And, yeah, everyone laughs in the crowd. Everyone laughs. You're 47 is yeah, the, exactly. is the yeah. joke. That You know that hilarious joke where, like, a person is 47? Well, life expectancy, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's even less funny than if you're going to die soon. <laughs> so, Antonia then gets her fortune told, and this gypsy says... Destruction o'er you hovers. Lusty man and crafty devil will combine to work your evil. Evil and devil rhyming there. So it doesn't sound very good, does it? No, that doesn't sound good. The first rhyme is shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, back in church, Don Lorenzo, he's fallen asleep in church. Flirting is tiring work. Exactly, yeah. And he has a dream about marrying Antonia. But then when she's walking down the aisle, she's sort of swept up and ravaged by a monster. Quote, the monster clasped her in his arms and springing with her upon the altar, tortured her with his odious caresses. She endeavoured in vain to escape from his embrace. Foreshadowing horn, please. What I was going to say, is Lorenzo a precog? Because so far he's like predicting everything. This is minority report. Maybe he's the gypsy as well. Maybe he's done a, a Mr. Rochester. And why you would say to Antonio like, oh, you're going to be at with a wonderful I'm man. I'm still glad. To <laughs> so when Lorenzo wakes from his dream, you know he's sort of people watching in the church, and he oversees a guy lurking around and acting really sketchy. The secretive man takes out a letter and he plants it beneath a statue and leaves. So Don Lorenzo assumes like, oh, this guy, I bet he's conducting some sort of secret love affair with one of the nuns. Turns out he's right. A young nun stealthily comes by and picks up the letter. So he's kind of chuckling at that until she turns around. Oh my god, the nun is Don Lorenzo's beautiful sister Agnes, who has just recently taken her vows in the convent there. Long story short, Agnes had a love affair with this guy named Don Raymond, but the relationship went south, and sort of in her grief over the breakup, she decided to join the most severe convent in the world. But I guess... She's gotten her groove back with somebody because she's now Abelard and Eloising with, like, this other rando. Love the kids. (laughs) He got his balls cut off. It's not funny. (laughs) Well, it would solve a lot of problems in this. I don't think it did for Abelard. So, Lorenzo confronts the sneaky man. How dare you flirt with sister, sister. (laughs) The guy throws back his hood and he's like, hey, Lorenzo, buddy, it's, it's me, your old friend, and Agnes's old flame, Don Raymond. Come by my house later. I'll explain everything that's up. Meanwhile, Ambrosio, he's returning to his cell. As Lorenzo predicted, he, yeah, he is a bit holier than thou. We get a sort of um, free and direct style type bit where he luxuriates in his own abstemiousness and chastity. Oh, I'm oh, such a good yeah, boy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, then, <laughs> and then he starts ogling this painting of the Virgin Mary and he's all like... <sighs> You know, oh yeah, I worship you so much. I wish you were here right now and I could worship you. You know, show you how much I worship you. Um, so we get another anti-Catholic moment there. Look at them, bloody Catholics. Uh, here's the line. Oh, if such a creature existed and existed but for me, were I permitted to twine round my fingers those golden ringlets and press with my lips the treasures of that snowy bosom. Gracious God, should I then resist the temptation? Should I not barter for a single embrace the reward of my sufferings for 30 years? Uh, hello, my fellow horny jail inmates. I do have to say, this man does know his Bible. If we turn to Psalm 1611, it says, In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Very good. Yeah. Agnes, 
Lorenzo's sister, the nun, she turns up to see Amber because the, the nunnery in the monastery are sort of like they share the grounds, a basically. Duplex or yeah. something. Else. <laughs> she turns up to see Ambrosio for confession and accidentally drops this letter from her lover Raymond. Ambrosio's like, "Ho ho, what's oh, this?" Yeah, and inside, Ambrosio reads that there's a plan to break her out of the convent. So you're not really meant to do that, are you? Turns out Agnes is pregnant as well. <gasps> so she starts like pleading and saying, "Oh, pity me, you know, a cruel twist of fate made um, me think that Raymond had left me. I don't want to be a nun. I want to get married. Blah blah blah." But Ambrosio's like, well, I could hardly allow this to slide. So he decides to daub Agnes into the nuns. And she's sort of like, you know, led away kicking and screaming by the, the heavy nuns. <laughs> <laughs> they do kind of pop out of hammer space like Ambrosio's number one goons. Exactly, yeah. Ah, gee, boss, we got it. <laughs> Tearing up cars. Nazis. Messing up with Nazis' cars. <laughs> Something like cutting the brake lines and things. <laughs> so, knock, knock. Now, Rosario is turning up in Ambrosio's cell. Who's Rosario? I'll tell you. He's a young novice monk who has become Ambrosio's pal and protégé. Oh, he's got a little buddy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, he's mysterious. No one knows where he came from. And he also appears to have some problem, a bit like Agnes did. So Rosario is like, swear, Ambrosio, that if I reveal my secret to you, you will not make me leave the monastery. Okay. Yeah, sure, right. Father, continued he in faltering accents, I am a woman! Matthew Lewis transing our youth. Legislator, no less. <laughs> so Rosario reveals, my name is actually Matilda, and I'm the most beautiful woman in Madrid, even though we've already had two of those in this book already. I heard you preach one day and thought your godliness was so hot that I gave up my position in society to come here and be near you. I want to boink your soul! <laughs> I have this intense, stalkerish vibe, and I feel like you could really match that energy. I even had some artwork of the Virgin Mary painted in my likeness and had it sent your way. Oh my god, it's the very painting he's... Touching been... himself over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? That is like proper stalker to do that. <laughs> So what does Ambrosio think of all of this, this big confession? Surely creepy, right? Survey says creepy? Mm -hmm. No, not creepy. He's uh -uh. flattered. But this ain't gonna work, Matilda. It would be career suicide if anyone found out. So Matilda, formerly Rosario, escalates and takes out a knife, screaming that she will only leave the monastery dead. Ma'am? Signorita? You are going from zero to a hundred like this is a luxury car commercial. But okay, this is the bit. This is the bit that I just rolled my eyes so hard they kind of they looped back around. This is where I fell in love with the book. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, read this. Read the big quote. Okay, so now even though she has her hood still up over her face, you know she's still in disguise as Rosario. She somehow manages accidentally, quote unquote, to tear open her robe so she has like a whole booblet hanging out. Quote. The weapon's point rested upon her left breast, and oh, that was such a breast. The moonbeams darting full upon it enabled the monk to observe its dazzling whiteness. His eye dwelt with insatiable avidity upon the beauteous orb. Mm. A sensation till then unknown filled his heart with a mixture of anxiety and delight. It's hot. <laughs> Sorry. Wait a minute. I mean, the blood did start there, yeah, we'll say. Yeah. A raging fire shot through every limb. Ooh. Every yeah, yeah. limb. Yeah, there we go. There it is. 
The blood boiled in his veins, and a thousand wild wishes bewildered his imagination. So, Ambrosio's now in quite a pickle. He's being blackmailed with this young lady monk's potential suicide, and he's got a funny feeling under his tunic. (laughs) So they have this whole long back and forth with her, like, tits still out, I guess. And he finally gets her to realize she simply can't stay there. It's unreasonable. And she agrees to leave. She's like, okay, I'll leave without a fuss. If you'll just get me one flower from the gardens before I go to remember you by. Vaginal reading. Thank you. Come, yeah, I didn't think come. that. Yeah. Looking the rose as well. It's very, it's his virginity. Yes, yes, yeah. So he goes and he picks the flower. And then while he's doing that, he gets bitten by a poisonous centipede because <laughs> apparently Satan's got a cute new outfit. <laughs> centipede bite. Well, it quickly puts him on death's door. Sorry, nothing to be done. All the monks lament, oh, he will surely die by the morning. But Matilda, back in her disguise as Rosario, tits firmly ensconced, I imagine, (laughs) says, it's okay, I'll nurse him through the final hours. But the next day, he's recovered. A miracle! No, Ambrosio, not a miracle. Because Matilda's sitting in the corner going, my mouth is numb. Turns out she sucked the poison from his wound, but she's thus condemned herself to death instead. Ma'am, senorita, I know this is a very thinly veiled sexual metaphor, but you are allowed to spit out the poison. I don't understand why she swallowed it. This is ridiculous. This sounds like a plot of a Matthew Lewis novel. (laughs) So she quickly goes to her deathbed, and the now recovered Ambrosio tends to her. And it's all vaguely necrophiliac, because the closer she gets to dying, the more hot and bothered everyone gets. Quote, Ambrosio was in the full vigor of manhood. He saw before him a young and beautiful woman, the preserver of his life, the adorer of his person, and whom affection for him had reduced to the brink of the grave. He sat upon her bed, his hand rested upon her bosom, her head reclined voluptuously upon his breast. Drunk with desire, he pressed his lips to those which sought them. He remembered nothing but the pleasure and opportunity. Mm. Opportunity. I don't know, Daniel. I can fix him. No, wait, no. I can get him fixed. Yeah, that one. Like, Abelard. He's setting a bad example, isn't he? When people get with their stalkers, that's a bad example. Like, uh, <laughs> like what's the face from Abba? Next. Oh, jeez, yeah. This uh, really oh, you're happy me. about this. Yeah. So we have these completely irrelevant chapters. I didn't want... No one wanted this. And it's a lot. Like, it's a long yeah, section. Yeah. Lorenzo, you remember him, he goes to see Raymond to hear about how he fell in love with Agnes. And this turns out into this novel within a novel. So Raymond tells about all his adventures in Germany, the other big Gothic location, I suppose, and how he met Agnes. Uh, she was living there for some reason, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you really paid attention. Uh, yeah, really glossed over this, yeah. So he encountered all these bandits, there's all this stuff about bandits. And so, yeah, there's a baroness there too, and he rescued her, but he fell in love with her niece, Agnes. Unfortunately, the Baroness also fancied Raymond, so there's a bit of a sort of... Love oh, another thing. old woman. Yeah, exactly. She's even grosser. She's like 48. She didn't like having a romantic rival, so the Baroness locks Agnes away in this castle. Raymond is like, oh, I've got to break Agnes out of the castle, and he comes up with a plan. What she's going to do is disguise herself as the castle's resident ghost. The- I- I'm sorry, the, ca- the what? The castle's resident ghost. We've jumped there. Okay, all right. Yeah. C- carry yeah, on. Yeah. Carry on. So this is the bleeding nun. This is the name of the ghost. 
probably based on a real folk tale. So that's kind of interesting. So yeah, every five years on the fifth of May, Karl Marx's birthday. Cinco de Mayo, none. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, this apparition wanders around the castle with a lamp and a dagger, and then kind of heads out of the castle gate. And there's this kind of tradition that the gatekeeper of the castle opens the gate for a fifth of May is approaching, so it's a perfect chance for Agnes to escape. So, so wait, I'm sorry, here's why this is such a flawless plan. Everyone knows what Agnes looks like! Well, she's got a big wimple on. Yeah, but aren't ghosts supposed to be transparent? Mm, I don't know. I don't know, I think these two are running for stupidest person in the book, and that's a competitive <laughs> award. Let's see how the plan turns out, shall we? Yeah, so Raymond's him... outside, waiting in a carriage. This kind of wimpled figure, holding a knife and bloody lamp or whatever it was approach she, and lighter. she gets right in yeah. she jumps right in the carriage and he starts kissing her and he's like yeah yeah to freedom my dulcet dove wait quote she lifted her veil slowly what a sight presented itself to my startled eyes i beheld before me an animated corpse her countenance was long and haggard her cheeks and lips were bloodless the paleness of death was spread over her features and her eyeballs fixed steadfastly upon me were lusterless and hollow oh he ran away with the real ghost who's serving up some spirit of halloween vibes so he's obviously freaked out right and he's like ah no thank you only the ghost falls for him like a baby duck Even though he escapes, she haunts him every night thereafter. So Raymond has to get her exorcised. And the exorcist comes in and he explains that the bleeding nun, she can't really be blamed. She's going through some weird sort of ghost puberty. Mm. And then, then Daniel, we have a very long story within a story within a story about her whole deal and how she became a nun and how she died and why she is so horny. And the ghost is finally exorcised and goes away, and it's never brought up again. Hooray. Also, isn't the guy that exorcised uh, secretly the wandering Jew or something like that? Yes, and I don't, I can't, I don't, I don't don't want to. I just think that there is surely a more economical narrative device to make sure that Raymond and Agnes get separated before they can escape. We did not have to jump straight to sex haunted until bedridden. Why is that the place you go? Brevity, my good bitch. Sorry, I took over. The rage is coursing through me. So, anyway, cool everything down a moment. (laughs) (laughs) He returns to Spain, this is Raymond, to recover and find Agnes. She's ended up in a nunnery there after she thought that he'd sort of um, jilted her at the escape because he ended up with the, the wrong... Are you None. are you trying to avoid saying ghosted her? Oh yeah, I wasn't <laughs> so out of touch with the pop culture that I didn't think. So yeah, they're all in Spain now. Raymond starts sneaking into Agnes's church and you know what happens. They succumb to their passions and that's how Agnes ended up with child. Ugh. Yeah, so he's telling this whole story to Lorenzo, Agnes's brother, and he's like, listen, we're going to have to spring her from Alcatraz before the nuns find out and slow roast her over a fire. Time is of the essence. Here's a full (laughs) hundred pages of inanity. It's also really weird that Raymond tells their whole, like, sexual exploit thing to her brother. The things we did, Lorenzo. So Lorenzo's like, Raymond, of course you have my blessing to steal my sister from the convent, but bro, you gotta put a ring on it. You bang it, you bought it. (laughs) But Lorenzo doesn't have too much time to think about his sister Agnes and her whole situation because 
for reasons simply too heterosexual to get into here, he's decided he's in love with that incredibly boring Antonia girl who doesn't talk, who he met once in church. And so he goes off to court her. Antonia spends his whole visit being just a paragon of womanly virtue, and she's full of gentle blushes and lots of needlework, and I want to set her on fire. Fire. I want to punch the highlights straight out of her hair. I hate Antonia. Mm, it's boring. So Antonia's mother, Elvira, expresses some concerns about the courtship, puts a bit of a cock block on the whole situation, but that's fine. Lorenzo now has more time to spring his sister out of nun jail. <laughs> Let's write to the Pope. And um, amazingly, the Pope agrees. Yeah, sure. He writes <laughs> back, you know, yeah, hashtag free Agnes. And so Lorenzo rocks up to that convent and he goes, boom, papal ball, bitch. The nuns come back with, oh, we'd, we'd really love to free Agnes, but um, she a little bit died. Mm. Sorry, Lorenzo. Um, no, of course you can't see the body. Uh, good day. We return to Ambrosio and Matilda and they're in a bit of a, a post-coital daze, aren't they? <laughs> and I was just wondering, yeah, have they been banging for the duration of the last three chapters. I... Because we're on to chapter something now. Six. We've had three whole chapters. And... I think it's supposed to be a cut scene. I'm just delighted you said the word banging, but I would like the readers to note that he wrote this in his script and couldn't just write it. He had to put it in quotation marks to distance himself from my sort of crudeness. Those are weak shields against the abject impropriety I'm slowly luring you over to. Her eyes were filled with a delicious languor. Her bosom panted. <laughs> she twined her arms voluptuously around him, drew him towards her, and glued, G-L-E-W-E-D, glued her lips to his. Bring that back. We want that lewd glued. Ambrosio again raged with desire. Late period my god no the die was thrown his vows were already broken he'd already committed the crime and why should he refrain from enjoying its reward he clasped her to his breast with redoubled ardor the fair wanton put every invention of lust in practice every refinement in the art of pleasure which might heighten the bliss of her possession and render her lover's transports still more exquisite. Imagine that. What even, is she doing more, to yeah, I don't know. I don't even want to know. And I don't know what that means. And I don't like it. I'm She's, frightened. <laughs> I'm just so glad we sent you to Juilliard so you could do a Yeah, I'm like wasted that. on this material. <laughs> okay, so again, Matilda is on her deathbed. She is still dying of agonizing centipede poisoning, which really puts the whole not tonight, darling, I've got a headache thing into perspective. I really love this book. Plausibility simply does not exist in this universe because she says that Ambrosio has shagged her so well that it's given her the will to live and she's decided she's simply not going to die. Hey. Let's turn to our Bible, shall we? Revelations 22.20, I come quickly, amen. Whoa. So there is a way she can be saved, but she needs to go down, down, down into the creepy convent vault at midnight to do something. Mm. The prefab I have here is, the title of this book should be Dungeons and Drag Queens. And she says, Ambrosio, no matter what you see or hear, you must stay up here. Don't come down. She makes her slow way down, and he hears her chanting. He sees some strange lights in the sky. There's a clap of thunder and an earthquake. And then Matilda walks back up, and she's fine. 
So either it's witchcraft or the author somehow thinks that earthquakes are a venom antidote. And given that this is Matthew Lewis, it could really go either way. Mm-hmm. No matter what, Ambrosio's like, great. And he doesn't think about it again. He's got his high-flying Abbott gig and a bit on the side. Great. As time goes on, Matilda's, quote, charms start becoming accustomed to him. They cease to excite the same desires which at first they had inspired. A delirium of passion being cast, he had leisure to observe every trifling defect. Where none were to be found, satiety made him fancy them. Satiety? You can say either, I think. No. I've heard satiety. By idiots? (laughs) Yeah, probably. The monk was glutted with his fullness of pleasure. And he sighed impatiently for variety. So, whatever, yeah, not tonight, love. So, who should turn up but Antonia? Remember her? Yep. She's come to church looking for help. Her cheeks were pale, her eyes dimmed with tears, and her hair fell in disorder over her face and bosom. Still, her countenance was sweet, so innocent, so heavenly, as might have charmed an heart less susceptible than that which panted in the abbot's breast. So he likes what he sees. Antonia's mother, Elvira, Vira, Elvira, is ill <laughs> and needs a confessor. You really have clocked out of this. You have punched your time card. No. <laughs> Ambrosio, he's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll be the confessor. I'll come out and you know, if you if your mum's dying, that's fine. I'll come to your house. So Ambrosio, he's cooled on Matilda. He leaves the monastery for the very first time in his whole life to visit Antonia's house on strictly religious matters. You course understand alvira she eventually recovers from her illness but ambrosio he continues to be a frequent visitor to their home as a side note antonia's aunt leonella the old hag from the first scene has given up her ill-fated love affair with that young wingman because he clearly was not interested so she ran off and married another hot young dude who everyone can see is just using her for her money that's fabulous i i kind of love her and the prefab i have is she's mutton dressed as glam so ambrosio has this really messed up thing about antonia because the thing he finds the sexiest about her come on her looks uh, no i'm getting there her looks slow your roll her personality (laughs) how big are her personality (laughs) no the the thing you find sexiest about her is her purity and modesty so we get some really creepy virgin fetishization he longs quote to deprive her of that quality which formed her principal charm so he starts giving antonia religious instruction and ingratiating himself with the family In his discussions with Antonia, Ambrosio discovers that she's actually completely ignorant of sex stuff. But surely she reads the Bible, he thinks. (laughs) Daniel wrote here, a veritable repository of smut. Did you want to read this? Because this is the passage that got Lewis in trouble. This is the big thing, not all the rape stuff. This is what really upset Coleridge and everyone. Quote, many of the narratives can only tend to excite ideas the worst calculated for a female breast. Everything is called plainly and roundly by its name, and the annals of a brothel would scarcely furnish a greater choice of indecent expressions. So he thinks the Bible... Is as bad as seeing a brothel menu. So yeah, so, I mean, surely she must read the Bible, must have some idea. No, no. Elvira has gone out of her way to keep Antonia as innocent as possible, and she has handwritten her own version of the Bible for Antonia's personal use that's taken out any of the dirty stuff. Sometimes Elvira seems kind of canny, and then we hear something like this, and you're like, come on, come on, love. God, some of these bitches are very dumb. And Um, I I can say that. 
because I'm a misogynist. So eventually, in one of Ambrosio and Antonio's creepy chats about ostensibly religion, Antonio expresses a bit of affection for Ambrosio. Quote, it would seem as if I had long known you, as if I had a right to your friendship, your advice, and your protection. Oh, you're like an uncle to me, sort mm-hmm. of thing. Well, that's enough for Ambrosio, who clasps, quote, the blushing trembler in his arms. Somebody calls it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> he fastened his lips greedily upon hers, uh, sucked in her pure, delicious breath. Ooh violated with his bold hand the treasures of her bosom and wound around him her soft and yielding limbs. So he basically puts his hand down her top without so much as a buy or leave. And Antonia's a little bit freaked out, but she kind of thinks like, oh, this is all some sort of weird mistake or accident. And Lord lover. The, the nicest yeah. thing I can say about Antonia is that her heart is bigger than her brain. So this is the exact moment when Elvira walks in and she clocks what's happening. Ambrosio quickly pushes Antonia away. Oh, no, nothing. Not what it looks like. But she's like, mm, I... There's a centipede down her top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you were a wrong and all along. So Ambrosio makes his excuses and he runs home. Quote, the impulse of desire, the stings of disappointment, the shame of detection, and the fear of being publicly unmasked rendered his bosom a scene of the most horrible confusion. I'm sorry, no, Antonia's bosom's the site of the most horrible confusion. There's a lot of confused bosoms in Madrid. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm learning here. Ambrosio, I don't know how to say this in Daniel language. I'll just say it in the way that you've written it. So Ambrosio has got what is called these days the ick for Matilda. Good job. Because she is a skank. <laughs> um, and he, but he's worried that if he doesn't placate her with sex, then she'll reveal their affair to the other monks. However, she's very gracious about his shift in uh, attentions to Antonia, isn't she? So this is what Matilda says. No, she doesn't actually say this. This is just me paraphrasing. <laughs> so and Matilda's kind of like, I know you've called on me, but I intend to remain your friend and confident and will help you to rape Antonia. So good friend oh uh, <laughs> well you heard that right folks i mean even ambrosia was like i'm the creep here and even <laughs> i'm creeped out well and it turns out that matilda is initiated in quote those arts which relate to the world of spirits mixology Wh- or whatever right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, witchcraft and oh okay right she she tried her knowledge out for the first time the other night you know remember <laughs> when she uh, successfully cured herself of the centipede poisoning and she did that by summoning to her aid a fallen angel. And she's like, well, that's, yeah, that's an idea. Let's get him back tonight so he can help you get your rocks off. Ambrosio, he's a bit like, ooh, whoa, ooh, whoa, man. Sure, raping a 15-year-old's one thing, but summoning a demon, a demon, to help me to do it, that ain't on. And Matilda's like, quote, it is not virtue which makes you reject my offer. You would accept it, but you dare not. So, you know, she calls it. So, anyway, no, 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 Ambrosio says, and Matilda's like, oh, okay, that's cool. Also, apropos of nothing. Yeah, I've got this sort of, you know, like Beauty and the Beast, I've got, you know, that film? I've got, you know, the mirror in that, I've got one of them that lets you see whatever you want. And I used to watch you with it. What? Yeah, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, but anyway, now I'll give it to you, and you can watch Antonia with it. Hmm, it's the very latest in creeper technology. Yeah. But here's, here's the thing, and I want to talk about this later, this book is really big on voyeurism and Mm. issues of consent. But it tends to just go one way. It's from men to women, men looking at women. And we have this little weird moment here where she's like, yeah, I used to do that with you. 
we the audience never see it we we don't get titillated at her you know doing a slow pan up from ambrosio's feet looking at his you know sexy legs up to you know, we never get that mm, the female gaze but we are about to get it the other way what's that called then the male gaze oh right yeah <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. yeah quote she put the mirror into his hand matilda pronounced the magic words he beheld in miniature i'm sorry this is my favorite section of the book he beheld in miniature antonia's lovely form the scene was a small closet belonging to her apartment i.e a bathroom she was undressing to bathe herself the amorous monk had full opportunity to observe the voluptuous (laughs) contours and admirable symmetry of her person she threw off her last garment and advancing to the bath prepared for her she put her foot into the water it struck cold and she drew it back again (laughs) at this moment a tame linnet bird flew towards her nestled its head between her breasts and nippled them in wanton play Mm. why is this bird dive bombing her boobs like a sexual kamikaze yeah (laughs) that's quite frightening as well imagine if that happened like birds have beaks get away from them nips the smiling antonia strove in vain to shake off the bird (laughs) (laughs) and at length raised her hands to drive it from its delightful harbor ambrosio could bear no more his desires were worked up to frenzy ph frenzy as well there's no f frenzy this is the real deal i'm gonna piss myself if i have to read one more fucking word of this this is terrible i love this so much this is what he says isn't it oh god yeah so so yeah okay so the ploy works and ambrosio tells matilda Okay, all right, you don't torture me with this magic mirror anymore. We'll go ahead with your plans to summon the demon. Now, if you'll excuse me to quote Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. I was thinking it could backfire, that he might just stay in with the mirror all day. Because these teenage boys, they're staying in with their magic mirror all day and not going out and forming normal relationships. <laughs> or it could backfire in another way where she's like, yeah, let's look at Antonia, but instead of her, like... She's yeah, yeah, she's sitting on the toilet picking at her feet. Oh, he likes that. <laughs> yeah, this is the this is a good bit. The ritual. They head back down into the vaults, you know, under the convent. So, Matilda starts chanting incantations. She scatters parts of human bodies and smashed up bits of holy relics around. And a beautiful naked young man with crimson wings appeared. Ooh, finally something for the ladies. Exactly. Yes. Quote, Ambrosio gazed upon the spirit of delight and wonder, yet however beautiful the figure, he could not but remark a wildness in the demon's eyes and a mysterious melancholy impressed upon his features, betraying the fallen angel. First of all, fantastic. (laughs) Secondly, is this a little bit of a queer reading? Because he's he's a little, he's got a little energy here going for this demon. Yeah. Call me by your name? If you're picking up what I'm putting down? No. Nope. Never mind. Okay. So, by Lucifer, it's Lucifer. Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Little prefab there. And Lucifer and Matilda have this big debate in an unintelligible language. You know, (laughs) you know the 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 kind of evil hell speak. You're getting good on your Duolingo. (laughs) Yeah. The demon eventually disappears. So Matilda explains what's going on after the summoning's over. So Lucifer, he didn't want to help you. So this is a big personal favor he's doing on my behalf. Uh, but he agreed to just this once. However, if you ever need any magic help ever, ever again, you'll have to do it yourself and you'll pay with your soul. <gasps> so Lucifer's doing me a personal favor to help you, but that's it. 
Never again. Do you understand me? Yes. <laughs> so, wait, 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 wait. So, Matilda basically is giving him, like, a Netflix, like, free one-month trial deal. But instead of him binging Emily in Paris, he gets a one-time rape pass. Yeah. So like, he, he, like Monopoly. He yeah. gets, like, Satan's magic without having to give up his soul because he used a broker. It's not real, is it? So, I suppose is what I would just add. But I know towards the end of this book... You had a point where you're like, no, I've reached my capacity to, like, suspend my disbelief. And I'm hitting that point way no, this is fine. Than... I think it's fine. Oh, this, this is fine. Okay. It's like drug dealers, isn't it? You get free one, then, you know, <laughs> it's fine. So, Lucifer provided a magic myrtle leaf. And so this magic myrtle leaf, it makes all the doors... It will make all the doors of Antonia's house open. And it will also... You have to do some magic words or something. It will make her fall into a deep sleep, during which you can do whatever you like with her. And his is the sweet part of the deal after the fact quote Antonia will perceive her dishonor but be ignorant of the ravisher oh (laughs) oh good so she'll she'll definitely know that she was sexually assaulted in her sleep I wonder who done it tremendous little footnote to throw in there yeah that's great that's f***ing twisted right so were you wondering what's been happening with Don Lorenzo and Don Raymond and sister Agnes no oh too bad because the story cuts back to them so we go back to Lorenzo. He's really depressed about his sister Agnes, who has apparently just died. And he kind of doesn't believe that she's actually dead. So he sends his servant Theodore, and I wondered, was that a little Castle of Otranto reference? Could be. To stake out the convent, hoping to, you know, dig up some dirt about what's going on there. Finally, a nun named Sister Ursula says that Agnes is absolutely dead. Sorry to break it to you. She saw the Mother Superior kill her. But Sister Ursula, you know, this whole thing, like, it's just not on. And she wants to expose Mother Superior as a murderer. Whistleblower. Well, I'm like, is is there a gas leak in the monastery? Because <laughs> everyone is behaving in the most deranged possible way. So Sister Ursula says that you guys, you know, should, you should help us get mother, the Mother Superior arrested. And you should do it during our big procession at the Festival of St. Clair in a couple of days. So... It was almost two o'clock before the lost full monk ventured to bend his steps towards Antonia's dwelling. Do you think he has that, he has that like, burglar music playing? He's playing it on easy mode though, isn't he? Because he's got the magic myrtle. He doesn't need to do any cat burgling type things. Just the myrtle makes all the doors fly open. And, you know, soon enough he's in Antonia's bedroom. Uh, probably raids the fridge first. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know what he's up to. So Antonia, you better believe it, she's sexier than ever when she's asleep. She's not even... There's not even any hint that she might talk. Well, I suppose people do talk in their sleep. Anyway, quote, An air of enchanting innocence and candour pervaded her whole form, and there was a sort of modesty in her very nakedness, which added fresh stings to the desires of the lustful monk. When I first read this during my PhD, I unleashed a scream so powerful that the echo is still going. If you're real quiet, you can hear it to this day. He does the trick with the myrtle to make her stay asleep and then leans down in preparation to kiss her. Gracious God! exclaimed a voice behind him. Am I not deceived? Is this not an illusion? Elvira had been having a dream that she was trying to stop Antonia falling off a cliff and that clearly was a premonition because she's turned up what does she see? Well, well, the man whom Madrid esteems a saint is actually a monster of hypocrisy. 
She starts shouting for help. So Ambrosio locks the door, grabs a pillow, and smothers the mother. Quote, until her face was covered with a frightful blackness. Her limbs moved no more. The blood was chilled in her veins. Her heart had forgotten to beat, and her hands were stiff and frozen. I think that means she's died. <laughs> um, the mood for raping has soured. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So Ambrosio bolts, leaving Antonia's magic sleep to wear off hours later. You know, Daniel, I do love a bad boy. Yeah. He's bad at everything. <laughs> However, by the time he makes it back to the monastery, he's actually decided that he must have Antonia at any cost. And I'm like, why don't you just go back there then? Antonia's unconscious, her mother is dead, and you're aided by the dark gift of a nightmare hellflower? The next morning, Antonia wakes up, sees her dead mother, and flips her wig. <laughs> the doctors are like, huh, must have been a seizure. So then Antonia is left all alone with no guardian, because remember, Aunt Leonella's f***ed off to be with her new boy toy. So, Antonia is left all alone with no guardian. Perfect time for a haunting. And this is the ghost of her mother, who says, don't worry, daughter, we'll be together again in three days. So Antonia has a bit of a nervous breakdown at this news that she's apparently gonna die, and she falls into um, a stupor, a coma, some sort of psychosomatic vegetative state, something. I don't quite know. So the servants, who only know Father Ambrosio as like a good friend of the family, they go to the monastery and they beg him to come take care of Antonia in her like comatose illness. Good news too, because Matilda's there to help. So she pulls a Friar Lawrence and she gives Ambrosio a special potion and it'll make her look like she's properly dead and he can revive her later. Ambrosio will, of course, you know, his friend of the family, oversee Antonia's funeral, and he can take her body and make sure she's buried in the sexiest part of the vault. (laughs) And then when she wakes up, bam, trapped in a skeleton rape shed. Yeah, that's what this book should be called. (laughs) Can we please send this whole book to therapy, please? Yeah, it's horrible, yeah. So Ambrosio, you know, it all works out. He gives Antonia the potion. She quote-unquote dies, the servants all start crying, and they send her body to the monastery vaults, and he's timed it so she'll come back to life on the night of the Festival of St. Clair. Gee, do you think that festival is a good place for the third act climax? So we'll go back to Lorenzo. He and Raymond, they've assembled a posse, and they're going to confront the Mother Superior during the big ceremony of St. Clair. So there's all chanting nuns in procession, there's children dressed as, ve- as angels, there's a very, very beautiful young woman, Virginia de Villafranca. She's a ward of the convent and she's dressed as St. Clair. Oh, good, just so we're super clear, this is now the fourth woman in the book who is the most beautiful woman in the book. Just so we're keeping score. The prioress herself is there and she's on a big moving throne. Hmm. Good anti-Catholic bit, I think. Bit of idolatry there. Look at them, bloody Catholics. But how great was the general confusion and surprise when Don Lorenzo, starting forward, challenged her as his prisoner. You know, you are Nobby, what's it? Nobby, Nobby, Nobby Nud. And I claim my ten pounds. <laughs> you know that. What's he called? Yeah, it, I don't remember, but in the newspaper. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the beach. In, in like, yeah, in like 1918 <laughs> or something. Yeah, some, some of the kids. Um, <laughs> so, sis, Sister Ursula, the whistleblower, I remember her, she reveals the whole sorry tale. The prioress, she decided to lock Agnes in a dungeon for the rest of her life. However, she was worried that Agnes might someday get out. 
And so the prioress poisoned Agnes. So Agnes and her unborn baby are dead. This is great splashy tabloid fodder. I would buy the shit out of this tabloid. Yeah. And also the whole five pounds for anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe you know that. I only know that because of an episode of Poirot. Oh, wow. The prioress, standing on the parade float, tries to protest her innocence. But all the congregation attending, they don't buy it. And they go, you know, ape shit. <laughs> they're throwing stones at her, they're attacking her. Quote, she sank upon the ground, bathed in blood, and in a few minutes terminated her miserable existence. So, it's a pretty exciting bit, isn't it? Anyway, the riot carries on, and they end up burning down the convent. Well, to be fair, that would have happened with Agnes's gender reveal party anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lorenzo realizes he has raised up what he cannot put down. The mob is looting and burning the convent, and they're killing every nun they can find, even the young innocent ones. Oops. <laughs> so he decides to help some of the, the nuns escape, and he finds a bunch of them hiding out in the convent vaults, including that beautiful Virginia Villafranca. So while they're hiding, they hear some really weird groaning, and they realize it's coming from behind a statue. All the novice nuns are like, oh, no, yeah, that that statue is, like, hella haunted. And Lorenzo's like, I just don't buy that. So he looks around, and he finds a secret door, which leads to an even secreter dungeon. So he goes down into the dungeon, and at the very bottom, he sees a wretched woman chained up with a bundle of rags nearby. My god, it's his sister Agnes! She wasn't dead after all! The mother prioress just wanted her to slowly starve to death. And apparently, she's given birth. The bundle of rags is a baby. But, of course, the child has died because this is still a gothic novel and bastardy is not smiled upon in these sorts of books. So, everyone rushes to help Agnes. You know, it looks like she'll pull through. So, all's well. But wait. Another scream in another part of the vaults. Who could that be? One of those days. (laughs) (laughs) Lorenzo runs off to investigate. Quote, all this while... See, this is... Okay, this is what bothers me. Quote, all this while, Ambrosio was unconscious of the dreadful scenes which were passing so near. So he's in his cell in the monastery. The nunnery next door to his monastery has burned down in a riot. Oh, the footy's on in Madrid tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they like that, don't they? So, anyway, his plan has worked beautifully. Antonia's trapped in the vaults and, quote, is absolutely in his disposal. Oh, for God's sake, somebody fed Jonah Hill after midnight. <laughs> but, so here's, here's my issue, right? So she's been there for days and he hasn't touched her. Why is he in the corner twirling his mustache waiting for her to wake up? He had no problem with her being asleep before. So he heads down to the vault and finds her looking sexier than ever when... In contrast to three putrid, half-corrupted bodies. Yeah, well, juxtaposition is better than Viagra. We've always said that. Yes, it's like a beauty tip from a, like a glossy <laughs> magazine. Have a, have a corpse next to you. That's why people have an ugly friend. So Ambrosio is down there in the vault with Antonia. She wakes up. She's completely terrified, understandably. Ambrosio explains the situation. So everyone thinks you're dead. You're trapped down here. Game over. And he rapes her. So immediately afterward, he's sort of a bit disgusted by it all. <laughs> Fatal witch, this is a quotation, was it not thy beauty? Have you not plunged my soul into infamy? Have you not made me a perjured hypocrite, a ravisher, an assassin? So he's all good guys, it's her fault, (laughs) is the gist of what he's saying there. The new plan is that Antonia can never leave the tomb, because she'll denounce him, and it's a suitable punishment anyway for her driving him crazy with lust. 
Matilda runs into the tomb and she says, uh, Ambrosio, there's kind of a riot going on upstairs and they've actually heard some screaming down in here. We should stab Antonia to keep her from telling anyone and we gotta leave. Ambrosio says, no, Matilda, I'd rather keep Antonia chained up here forever to be my sex slave. While Ambrosio and Matilda are debating what to do, Antonia legs it out of the vault. This is the first active thing she's done in the entire book. She's creaking back to life. Somebody must have put 50p in her. <laughs> so Ambrosio is like, oh, shit, 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 and he runs after her. He finally catches up. It's really tense, and he stabs her before she can tell anyone. A slight problem. He has just stabbed her in the middle of a courtyard, in the middle of a riot, in front of about a thousand witnesses, so he is immediately arrested. Keeping a sex slave at your work, it was a good idea on paper. Lorenzo arrives just in time to hold Antonia while she dies, and Antonia gives this really horrible speech about how she's glad she's dying because she's been sullied and she doesn't deserve to be Lorenzo's wife and she'll meet him in heaven and blah blah blah. And Lorenzo is so sad. Not that chick he met twice. <laughs> you should have angel cleared it. What? <laughs> yeah, dropped her yeah, head on the ground. Like yeah. a move. So she dies. Rip Antonia, gone and forgotten. And I literally mean that because almost immediately the story tells us, it's okay, don't be sad for Lorenzo. He marries that other hot chick from the, the Catholic parade float who's even more beautiful in it yeah, than Antonia. Yeah, and the book actually explicitly tells us, makes a note, like, She's she was actually good looking, whereas Antonio's just sort of good looking in a kind of creepy way. <laughs> Well, Lorenzo and this other chick, they have lots of babies, and Raymond and Agnes get married, and Agnes doesn't even have a little bit of trauma, and everyone's so happy except for Antonia, who's dead. Now, Daniel, the book could end here. It really could, because everything's more or less tied up. But it doesn't. Great. It keeps going, like the human centipede. And I'm very excited to get to the next bit. But now we enter Endgame. <laughs> Ambrosio is in jail and he's, well, he's feeling a little bit chastened, <laughs> to say the least. So soon he and Matilda are brought to trial in the inquisitorial court. And this is such a big case, you know, the, the hot 30 under 30 <laughs> has been found to be a sort of sex pest slash murderer. Ugh, just another victim of the Me Too movement. <laughs> Ambrosio is tortured, his limbs are dislocated, nails torn from his hands and feet, and his fingers mashed and broken by the pressure of the screws. So, that was just day one of his trial. <laughs> While Ambrosio awaits the second day, he gets a visitor at his prison cell. Who could it be? It's Matilda. Hey. Before, where she was looking all malnourished and broken from jail, here she appears to have been freed, and she turns up serving cunt. Oh, Daniel made a face. He doesn't know that expression. That is a very popular expression online at the moment. That means being fabulous. I cannot believe you haven't heard that one just from being on Twitter. Can I first of all ask a thing about Twitter? You know, when you like the trending things, yeah. a lot of them things pertaining specifically to the types of people you follow. It's types of people you follow and it's also your location. Yeah, that's what I thought. Because, yeah, for me, what's trending is always Birmingham, Marx, and Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm just so out of touch. It's just all that stuff. Well, yes, this is a very, very common phrase. It might be the biggest, like, bit of slang at the moment. The biggest bit? Wow. Yeah, so she she's wearing some sort of, like, diamond-encrusted dress, and she just looks fantastic. How is this possible? 
Oh, no big deal. She just sold her soul to Satan in exchange for freedom and a bitchin' wardrobe. You should join me, Ambrosio. No. Quote, monstrous are my crimes, but God is merciful. You'll regret it, Matilda says. But so she gives him a book that tells him, you know, step-by-step -step instruction, how to sell your soul for dummies. Um, and she's like, okay, you know, you have all the information you need. And then she disappears in a burst of blue flame. The next day in court, everyone's like, uh, where the hell did Matilda disappear to? And Ambrosio has to explain that she sold her soul and he assures the judge, I wasn't involved in this, I'm no sorcerer, I'm just your humble country rapist and murderer. Regardless, he's sentenced to be burned at the stake. It's rare that I root for the Spanish Inquisition, but here we are. Even a stopped clock. Yeah, I don't know. Awaiting his punishment in his cell, Ambrosio is like, oh, actually, maybe I will just have a look at Matilda's book after all. So he reads this particular passage that Matilda recommended and, quote, scarce had he pronounced the last word when the effects of the charm were evident. A loud burst of thunder was heard. The prison shook to its very foundations. And in the next moment, borne upon sulfurous whirlwinds... Less said about them, the better. Lucifer stood before him. He appeared, this is a good bit, he appeared in all that ugliness which since his fall from heaven had been his portion. His hands and feet were armed with long talons. Over his huge shoulders waved two enormous sable wings, and his hair was supplied by living snakes which twined themselves round his brows with frightful hissings. In one hand he held a roll of parchment, and in the other an iron pen. Quite advanced for the 1790s, wasn't it? The iron <laughs> pen came later. 30 years ahead of his time. I think that you're interrupting this bit to talk about the history of the pen. Birmingham yes. Pen Museum. I'm sponsored by the Measuring Worth and the Birmingham Pen Museum. It's a good day out. We're going to get a cease and desist. What, from who? The, Measuring the, Worth the, or the, the Birmingham Pen Museum? Both of them. You're not affiliated with us. I love the Pen Museum. Yeah, but they might not like what we're doing. They might like me. I keep knocking on the door at night. Um, <laughs> I only had a magic myrtle to let me into the Pen Museum at night and do whatever I like with the nibs. <laughs> <laughs> so... Ambrosio explains the situation, so he's like, well, I'm going to die, and if Lucifer, you can help me, I'll be in your debt. But, this is the good bit, he tries to haggle. He's like, to the devil, like, can you go lower in your price? You know, I'll be yours for a thousand years. After that, I'm off scot-free. The devil's like, no, you're going to end up with me either way because of your crimes, so you might as well sell your soul in full. Ambrosio's like, well, what about purgatory? <laughs> you, you never know, I might get off with a slap on the wrist. Stop nickel and diming the devil. I like that. I think that's what you should do. <laughs> the devil goes hard sell, but Ambrosio's like, mm, maybe not actually. And the devil's like, well, if you mess me around like this another time, I'll tear you a new one. Quote, the monk rejoiced at having resisted the seducer's arts and obtained a triumph over mankind's enemy. Hooray! So he's a bit like Jesus. He's managed to resist the temptation of Satan. Then he hears the jailers coming. It's time for him to be burned to death. Also, I would be annoyed if I were Satan too. I'd be like, you called me. But he was annoyed, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's execution time. Uh, Satan, wait, I've changed my mind. So he resummons Satan. He gives away his soul in exchange for escaping. And Satan just gets really extra with this escape. Rather than like materializing them somewhere else, he causes the roof of the building to fly open. He grabs Ambrosio and flies him out of jail like an eagle holding a chihuahua. And they go to the top of a mountain. Up on the mountain, the devil starts to be a real jerk. Don't meet your heroes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm learning. 
He says, you fool, you only exchanged your soul to get out of prison. Well, you're out of prison, and here's what's going to happen now. I'm going to tell you some stuff to make you feel really stupid, and then I'm going to kill you immediately and take your soul down to hell with me. Firstly, I've been targeting you the whole time because of your pride. <gasps> you thought you could never be tempted and that you were so great. This I'm calling bullshit on this. I'm like, so because of the sin of pride that he can't sin. I'm like, but he is sinning. But also, he was only proud because of his fucked up upbringing. So yeah, Matilda was always one of my underlings. She was a plant, Ambrosio. Secondly, Elvira was secretly your mother. What? Which makes Antonia your sister. And you did an incest. And that is for some reason going to be the giddy limit for you because I guess that's not your kink. I didn't even know. I was like, why have I finally found this out? I know there have been little clues, but... No, no, they, they do not. It's not like Oedipus or something where there's a kind of clever realisation. No, no, like, no. By it, the way, that was your sister. It, it is <laughs> utterly ridiculous. They, they do not see this anywhere near enough. So, yeah, I guess, like, you were the baby that Elvira had, you know, 15 years before Antonia, and for some reason, I can't remember, you got taken away. There was and, some bad Marquis, wasn't there? Yeah, and given to a monastery. Why? Reasons. Who cares? Whatever. But now, unrelated unlike you and Antonia, those jailers weren't actually coming to burn you at the stake. They were actually coming to pardon you. Again, why? Because reasons... So this is controversial stuff, but... And they just move people. You hear about that and you're like, we'll just move you to a different parish. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that normally the way it works? Ambrosio tries to pray, but it's too late. Satan sinks his talons into Ambrosio's scalp and he flings him off the mountain. Just some true wily coyote falling off a cliff shit. <laughs> Ambrosio breaks all the rest of his bones that the Inquisition didn't break, and he tumbles to rest in a sludgy stream where bugs and animals gnaw on him for a few days while he dies of exposure. And if you pardon the pun, this is complete overkill. The end. And honestly, I think Satan's gonna want to return that soul, because that's gonna bum the shit out of all the other demons. <laughs> you like some casting hell yeah i am very proud of this one. Oh great because this book would not work as a straight adaptation there was that vincent cassell adaptation that what there's a film of this yeah a, a okay. few years ago and it was it's, it's terrible. too much homework i do for these episodes <laughs> it's it's just it's too ridiculous like i don't think it would work as a film so how do we update this and make it work This is about an aggrieved, ambitious, privileged white dude who has very dysfunctional relationships with women and a lot of struggles with temptation versus agency. This is a 1980s or 90s Michael Douglas dark psychosexual drama like Fatal Attraction or Disclosure, Basic Instinct, A Perfect Murder. Hmm. This is a David Fincher corporate gothic retelling. Ooh. Smashed it. Right, and now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. Flush that toilet, one star. (laughs) Corrupted file, 400 blank pages after the introduction, one star. Sounds like much better. I hate the cover image, two stars. So thanks guys, this was um, a real treasure trove this time. 
Now on to analysis, please. You wanted to talk about form. Yeah, because I was thinking this whole A plot, B plot thing, a bit like a sitcom. Let's cut away to see what Joey's up to with his funny thing. But the, the thing here is that it's not like one is frivolous and one is the main one. They're quite complementary, aren't they, the mm. A plot and the B plot. And their antagonists are very much counterparts, aren't they? So Ambrosio and the Prioress are both these kind of villainous... I mean, the next door neighbours. They're mm-hmm. both opposite numbers. They're literally counterparts. They're both hypocrites, but one's too zealous. One's kind of horseshoe theory of zealotry that mm-hmm. he's gone all the way around to become completely transgressive. <laughs> That said, however much they do compliment each other, this is just me ultimately saying I didn't want the B-plot. I didn't need the B-plot. It was annoying having the prior stuff. And the whole, like, this is how I met your sister, mm. the bleeding nun and all of that stuff. Like That was the most egregious bit. Because yeah. it goes, I mean, we, we summed it up very quickly, but I remember that being about a third of the book. I was, like, really cross. Like actually, oh. I was actually angry reading that bit. I was like, this is such bollocks. Why has this been put in here? Yeah, maybe we should talk about that. Yeah, tangents. You either need more of them or you need to get rid of the big one. Well, yeah. Once you get to the 19th century and like Jane Austen, yeah, even people like Dickens and stuff, they don't go on tangents like that. No. Even Dickens, who's like, obviously those novels are huge, but they all kind of interfere. And this is so clunky. And I'm just, what happened between 1796 and like 1798 or whatever? When I mean, the development of the novel got a lot more sophisticated. Wait, yeah, but why is that? Because that was so quick. What was going on in that decade? I think it's a sort of saturation point where you have, you know, sort of the early novel stuff. You have, you know, Robinson Crusoe and Pamela and, and Moll Flanders. And they kind of, we have issues with pacing mm. and tangents with that as well. Yeah, th- th- yeah, exactly. They're very similar to this. So it took about a century and it was slowly fracturing off and slowly experimenting with different styles. And I think it just reached a sort of saturation point. If you consider Frankenstein was written barely 20 years later. Mm. What a different, wonderful, economical read. She fits in so much in such a smaller space. The pacing is so much better. And even there, which does use the device of the story within a story, that's a much more sophisticated mm-hmm. thing where every story is interacting with every other. And, you know, you've got the kind of dartboard model of stories within stories. And in fairness, you and I haven't actually read things like Anne Radcliffe. So I have no idea if it, Lewis is, yeah, 20 years old. Clearly a horny frat boy who wrote this in 10 weeks, and it really shows. And he also had, like, a full-time job. He was working elsewhere, you know. So is this, like, the Fifty Shades of Grey where everyone kind of universally agrees it's a bit shit, but we can't stop reading it? Mm. Yeah. Because, I mean, even his pacing, I was thinking, this book is 14 different novels, and 12 of them happen in the last five pages. I wanted to talk... I know we're going to talk about sex stuff a bit later, but I wanted to talk about the form and how it interacts with gender. Hmm. Have we talked about on this show before the blazon tradition? I think we did yeah, with, with Orlando. Orlando. Think, but yeah, come on, remind us. So that's when, and we get this all the time, it's when um, a woman is sort of, usually a woman, is introduced with all of her different body parts. Like, so, you know, oh, she had, you know, this lustrous hair. She had this magnificent bosom. Her, you know, feet were like this. Her that, nose went from here to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that Shakespeare sonnet, my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun. So it's like mm. basically just introducing chopping a woman up. by chopping her up into individual body parts. And we get that here with Antonia, who is just constantly looked at and sexualized and dehumanized by Lewis and by everyone else, the good guys and the bad guys mm. in the book. We didn't even really talk about this, but in that an opening bit where she goes into church and she's wearing a veil and they all try and coax her to take it off. They keep getting like glimpses of different parts of her through mm-hmm. her clothes. And so that again, sort of, there's a kind of literal sort of segmenting of her body mm-hmm. in that device as well. Yeah. Like, she's doomed to be destroyed. Lewis is almost kind of concretizing. Lewis is kind of making literal the misogyny of the blazon. Yeah, and that, you know, oh yeah, you think it's 
sexy to ogle a woman in that sort of vivisection sort of way, mm. well, that's actually going to get chopped up. And Leonella, they, they sort of get a dig in at her because she happily takes her veil off. She's like, oh, these boys are cute. I want to flirt with them. I want them to see how good I look. And they're revolted that she is consenting mm. to be seen. And that's the thing where they're like, oh, this is so embarrassing. Well, that's the whole, like, you can't win. Can you? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the rule of, like, misogyny and stuff. You can't win. There's a similar thing going on. I don't want to com- completely change the topic, but there's a similar thing going on with the anti-Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Isn't there? That it's like, ooh, they were all so idolatrous and they have so many smells and bells. Let me describe them to you. You know, like, mm-hmm. he, he so, has it both ways there in his anti-Catholicism. Yeah, so we get the, the full grandeur and the full yeah. spectacle. We and- can ogle it, but also say... Naughty. Yeah, I thought a lot of this, his messages occasionally were really unclear, or rather his messages were clear, but then what he was doing, he was hypocritical himself in a lot of his stances. which kind of makes it an interesting document. But I was was really intrigued by the character of Matilda, Mm. who's easily the most complex and interesting person in this. And she's like a sort of radical, isn't she, as well? She's always saying stuff like, celibacy's wrong, like, no wonder you're all screwed up, and like, coming up... that's that's actually Lewis's point. I know, yeah. Right, and so I'm like, but you're putting that in the mouth of a satanic character, so like you're undermining your own point. Yeah, are you the devil? Are you the devil yeah, in cahoots? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, like Blake says about Milton about how he was of the devil's party and he didn't even know it. <laughs> Same with Lewis. But then also, if you're trying to frame Matilda as bad, you made her sound awesome. She, yeah. she lives. She. I love that at the end when she's all like covered in diamonds. She's like. Yeah. Smell you later, jabroni. Yeah. So a feminist hero is what you're saying. A little bit. Uh, sex, just briefly. Yes, please. When did people stop writing I'm sorry, about... That, that made it sound like you were offering no, no, us yeah. I know, I know, it's funny. Because <laughs> this is quite a saucy book. And I know people at the time found it saucy. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, obviously like Henry Fielding and stuff also wrote quite sexy or like sort of smutty books. Mm-hmm. When did that go out? Is that something you know about? Because I don't. 18... 18- 50s, it more sort of moved into a different realm where huge gothic novels like this, kind of after Frankenstein, they kind of fell out of fashion. Mm. So it moved to like the penny press, and this ended up being stuff instead of like everybody reads this. It's like, oh, this is what like, like Reynolds. poor people yeah. read. So, I mean, it was always popular, it just was not something that middle class So again, and rich we just people... see a, we're seeing a fragmentation as like kind of yeah. media engagement becomes just more universal yeah and, and gothic literature full stop kind of fell out of fashion a yeah. bit and it, it came back with like the urban gothic and the imperial gothic and they had their own traditions you know sensation fiction yeah. deals with that but in its, it's sort of scattered like, amongst in its yeah. pure form it kind of had a tone lowering and then that only came back i think in full force at the end of the century with things like jekyll and hyde mm. and dracula yeah. which are very like not quite like this but very like erotic it's clear that there's like a symbolic mm. role of erotic in those texts mm. but they're not like this are yeah they? there's no just extended descriptions of bosoms <laughs> more's the pity well exactly there you go just wondering yeah advice please so i think it's helpful to remember that classic literature often gets a reputation for being somehow more noble and high-minded and virtuous and i'm here to remind you that most literature from all time periods is about sex especially the old stuff even if it's not entirely explicit to our ear today. So don't assume that just because a text is old, it's automatically virtuous or it's automatically good. I just, I think it's important to remember that every time period had their Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, trashy, you know, popular thing. Popularity is not a sign of quality in any time period. 
No, it is not. So Funny to hear that coming from you. I'm not saying it doesn't have its uses, and I'm not saying it doesn't have its worth. I'm saying it doesn't mean it's going to stand the test of time. My philosophy, if the swinish multitude like it, must be trash. So you're asking our fans to stop listening then? We don't have a huge fan base, do we? We have enough. Discerning minority. Right. So here's our clue to the next episode. Okay, this was a really fun little sidestep, but I keep going back to the Odyssey. I think I'd like another huge epic spanning decades, but this time maybe a different pantheon. That's nerdy. Why? Talking about gods, pantheons, and... Of all the shit I've said, that's the nerdy one that you call me out on? Okay, so thanks, guys. Write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen. We will be back next. I know we've taken a lot of breaks. We will be back in our normal two-week schedule with a new episode. Please do sign up to our Patreon if you can. We'd really appreciate it just because this is a ton of work and, you know, we're we're trying to make ends meet here, um, keeping the show afloat. I just got an unexpected bill from ACAST, which was several hundred pounds, which I was... Yeah, I'm pretty annoyed by that. We will provide you with a few extra supplementary materials. Not a ton, probably one video a month. Something to keep you going a little bit, if you feel so inclined. Right, do we have anything else to say? Have a lovely fortnight, and I'll be right back here. I'll be, I'll be right here. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you. 